Well, good morning. Hey, it's great to be here in the South Hills this morning. Uh, my name is Dave DiDonato. I am our campus pastor in Wilkinsburg. So I want to welcome uh, my Wilkinsburg Church family. Good morning, Wilkes. Uh, good to see you this morning through the video. They don't see me uh, in person, but thanks to Ted and Jim and Jay and Julia who lead. And I want you guys to know you, you see the campus pastors a good bit, but we have an amazing support staff at our campus every week that helps lead us, uh, help lead developing followers of Jesus Christ. So I'm thankful for my team in Wilkinsburg this morning, including all those joining us online as well. Today, uh, the campus pastors at the other campuses, they are preaching live at their campuses for Memorial Day weekend. So let's pray and ask that God would lead us here in the South Hills, in Wilkinsburg, online, and across all our campuses, that God would speak through the campus pastors this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, we praise you that each week we can gather together as a corporate body across all our campuses to worship you through the praise of song, worship you through giving, worship you now as we do through the hearing of your word. And as we'll do at the end of service, worship you through that ordinance of communion as commanded by Jesus. Father, as we already uh, remembered earlier, we are humbled and blessed to live in a country where we can freely gather at all our campuses right now and worship the name of Jesus. Many around the world have to hide in basements or have to be secretive in order not to have their life taken. And God, we know that you sovereignly are the one who has blessed the United States of America with the freedoms we have, but you have used the men and women in our armed forces to protect our freedom. And this weekend, we pray for them now who serve, but God, in Memorial Day weekend, we thank you and we are humbled to know that you protect our freedom also through people who have given the ultimate sacrifice of their life. And God, we think of those families as those videos show, as, as many of us will go from here today and tomorrow and celebrate with family, there are many who are mourning this weekend the loss of a son, a daughter, a mom, dad, because they gave up their life to protect the freedoms we have. Be with those families this weekend, God. Comfort them as only you can. And we pray you will draw them to yourself this weekend. So God, now again, as we get ready to dig into your word, I pray that we would put aside whatever's going on in our life from this week and commit our attention to your word. Father, I commit myself to you. I pray that your spirit would speak through me as only you can. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the Newfield Institute is an organization that is based in Vancouver, Canada. And they, for 40 plus years, have been committed to what they call the, the potential of, of human development. They're all about trying to understand what are the best methods to take a child from adolescence to adulthood. Their mission is this, quote, our mission is to use developmental science to make sense of children to the adults responsible for them. Dr. Gordon Newfield has been leading this group since 1974 and through the decades of researching what's the best way really for human maturity, he says today we're actually not doing very good. We are lacking when it comes 
to developing children into maturity. He wrote an article uh, last year entitled, quote, Where has all the maturity gone and why have so few noticed its lack? He sees in, in their study, they're not a Christian organization, but in all their research, they're seeing that children today are maturing at a slower rate. And he says, parents, we, we just can't assume that naturally with age, our children are going to grow and become mature. He says this in that article, quote, growing older is no guarantee of growing up. And it seems that fewer of us are getting there these days, stuck in immaturity. I was thinking this week, I hope the same could not be said about the church, about the Bible chapel. How many believers are stuck in spiritual immaturity? How many think that because they sit in pews each week or, or any one of our campuses that naturally with age and with time, they're, they're just naturally going to become a mature believer? And as church leaders, are we letting that become the norm? How are we truly challenging and encouraging believers in Jesus Christ to grow in their faith and become the men and women of God that he desires of us? The past two weeks, we kicked off this series in Proverbs, and our, and our definition that has been leading our way is this. Wisdom, which is the, the key term we've been studying, is embracing God's word and learning the skills of living out biblical truth in everyday life. Today, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take that definition of wisdom from Proverbs, and we're going to look at a New Testament passage in a book of the Bible that many say is the Proverbs of the New Testament. That's the book of James. Proverbs talks about practical wisdom. James talks about practical faith. What does it look like for a maturing believer to exemplify the skills that God is working in them through the power of his spirit on a growth of spiritual maturity so we don't stay stuck in infancy when it comes to our faith. So take your Bibles and open to James chapter 1 this morning. And as we do that, I want to set the, the context real quick of this book and this specific passage. So there are four James mentioned in the New Testament, but, but most agree that James, the half-brother of Jesus, was the author of this epistle. This is the same James, according to the book of Acts, who led the, the Jerusalem church. And James is writing to a group of people that he calls, in verse 1, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That word dispersion stands for Jewish believers who were scattered now from Jerusalem around the world, mostly due to heavy persecution. And James' desire writing to this group is he wants to see genuine, practical faith in their lives to guide them through the trials they were experiencing. To not just look at the physical things they were experiencing, but well, what God was doing amongst those things to make them stronger, wiser, more mature in Jesus Christ. If you've ever studied James, the theme is clear. Genuine faith is active and leads to spiritual maturity. Now, I want to make something clear because we're going to use that word faith a lot this morning, and I want to talk about what, what is this genuine faith? Well, there's two types of faith that we see in Scripture. One 
is the moment when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We call that our saving faith. This is that one time for all time moment where you go from being dead in your sins to alive in Jesus Christ and you realize you can't get to God on your own and you trust in the work and person of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is a one time for all time moment. You are eternally secure in Christ at that moment. So we're not talking about your saving faith. You, you are secure in Christ. What James is talking about is the life we still have to live as a believer. We call this our daily faith. And I was going to be proud that my writing's better than Ron, but I don't know if it is. Let's see here. <laughs> so James is saying in this life that we experience as believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to experience persecution. We're going to go through things. And he, here's the marks of a believer of what it looks like to have genuine faith that is moving towards spiritual maturity. All right, so we're going to look at verses 2 through 8. That's our text for this morning. So open up your Bibles and look there. James 1, chapter 2, I mean, verse 2 to start. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So I love Ohio Powell State Park. Anybody else enjoy Ohio Powell, have been out to Ohio Powell? All right, I say that while also admitting I am not a nature guy at all, at all. I fished twice in my life, caught zero fish. I've never been hunting and I take three allergy shots every month because I'm allergic to everything in God's creation. God has given me that gift, and I think that's why he planted me in Wilkinsburg. We have like 20 trees in Wilkes. They'll agree with me. All concrete, so I'm safe there. But I married Kristen, who really likes nature. So in our 11 years of marriage, she enjoys going on hikes. And the good husband I am, I go with her. And I love Ohio Pow because when I get there, as an amateur outdoorsman, I get this map and everything's color-coded for me. So we pick the blue trail. We go down to the beginning of that trail. And not only does it tell me where to start, but as you go, if you've hiked there, about every 20 yards, there's these marks, these colored marks that make sure you stay on the right trail. If I get off of my color, I know I need to get, find my colored tree and get right back on. It helps me. It guides me in these trails. Well, I believe James here in James chapter 1 is giving what I would like to call the path marks of genuine faith that guide us through trials to spiritual maturity. If you have these marks of faith in your life, then you know that when trials come, that you're going to go through those trials, the spiritual maturity. He gives us these marks, and we're going to look at those this morning. Do you have these marks in your life of genuine faith? Here's the first one. 
James says a maturing believer is going to be committed to viewing their trials differently. Look at verses uh, 2 through 4 again. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a false theology today that says that God never wants you to be sick, poor, or have trials in your life. You know what? Name and claim health and wealth, and it will be given to you. Well, we don't see that in Scripture. James says that's not the case. James is writing to believers who have been persecuted. They are predominantly poor. They're hurting. And he says, yeah, these trials, count them as joy. And he says two things in verse 2 that solidifies this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when, he doesn't say if. So he's saying trials are part of every believer's life. It's not if, it's when. Either you're in one now or one's going to be coming. So they're part of our life. And he calls them trials of various kinds. That's comforting to know that no matter what you're facing, God is never wasting your time. He cares about the, the most minor trial and thing you're going through to the major life-altering tragedies. Whatever you experience in your walk with Christ, God has a purpose behind it. He's never wasting your time. And that's what James is saying here right now. Now, if you're a first century scattered believer, you might be thinking, I think, James, you still have lost your senses. I'm persecuted. My life is being threatened. And you're saying in this trial, I need to look at this trial and say, thank you, God. Don't worry. Be happy. Everything's going to be okay. Maybe you're thinking that a little bit this morning. I've been out of work for months I've been applying to every job I can. Nothing's coming through. We are scraping by financially. Count it all joy, Lord. The health diagnosis I got last week. Count it all joy, Lord. When James says count it all joy, he is not demanding that his readers must enjoy their trials as if trials in themselves are joyful. Instead, he is encouraging them to make a deliberate commitment in the midst of trial to consider, that's what count means, to consider them as matters of joy for what they're going to do in the production of their faith. He wants them to get their eyes off the physical trial and see what God wants to do in their spiritual walk with him. That's what he's telling them to do. Consider them matters of joy for what God is going to do in you and through you through this trial. God is not done in the work of a believer once you have that saving faith. You're secure in him. But he still has work to do in you and through you. And it's not just going to come from being part of five Bible studies. It's going to come through the everyday moments, the everyday trials of this life where he's going to use them to mold you and make you more like his son. And it's going to keep happening until the day you go with him or the day that he returns. Philippians 2.13 says, it is God who works in you. This is not your human effort. This is the spirit of God in your life. 
to will and to work his good pleasure. James says this is going to happen until we are perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's when we go to be with God. That's when it will be completed. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Therefore, James says, if you make that commitment to view your trials differently, God's going to use it to produce steadfast faith. Say this this word with me, steadfastness. Say it. Come on, one more time. Steadfastness. That's what God is doing. That word steadfast means patient endurance. I like how uh, J.H. Ropes, an old theologian, he says, God's making you spiritually tough. He's giving you staying power in Christ. I was picturing, you know, what this would look like. And I know uh, a few people in Wilkinsburg, they ran the, the marathon a few weeks ago. And I think of the Pittsburgh Marathon Runner. I ran the marathon two years ago for the first time. And I remember how daunting the training schedule was. For a guy who never ran more than, you know, five or six miles, I'm going to somehow get to 26.2? Well, if I went out on that first Sunday in May without any training, I would be in deep trouble. Deep trouble. So for months, I start getting to these new, new moments in my running. I run seven miles. I'm sore. I'm being stretched. I get out that next weekend, nine 11, then you start hitting these marks, 15, 17, 21. And all through it, I'm becoming wiser with my body. I'm becoming stronger. I'm building up this physical fortitude. So when I get to race day, yeah, I can run 26.2 miles. I feel like James is saying the Holy Spirit in our lives is using these trials and building us up in Christ, that from the moment you trust in him to the moment you go through him, he is using these moments in your life to make you more mature, building this steadfast faith to grow you into the man and woman of God he desires. Jay Thompson, uh, who's our new youth director in uh, Wilkinsburg, I like what he says. We were talking about this. He said, you know, it makes me think trials are not meant for us to go through, but to grow through. Don't just think about, I want to get through this. Think, open your eyes to being committed. All right, God, what are you doing through this? So maybe you're thinking, as a first century believer might have thought, all right, I'm in. I want that first mark. I'm committed, either now in the midst of the trial I'm in, or the ones that are coming. I'm committed to start viewing them differently. But tell me, James, what's that next step? What are are the other marks to make sure I'm on the right path to spiritual maturity. Well, look again at verse 5. James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. James says the mark of genuine faith of a growing believer is that when you hit those moments of trial, you're going to crave and seek after the wisdom of God. When trials come in your life, do you run to a friend first? Do you run to your spouse first? Do you run to the internet first? Or do you crave and seek after the wisdom of God first and foremost? The language here in verse 5 indicates humility in a maturing believer's life. It is not let him demand of God, let him earn from God. It is let him ask 
of God. And the English word ask does not do the original language justice. That word in the Greek is a beggar's word. It means you crave, you beg for, you desire God's wisdom more than anything else in your life in those moments. And it's not because God is reluctant to give you his wisdom. It's more the matter of a maturing believer's heart that more than anything, when you have those moments, you say, God, more than anything right now, I desire your wisdom, your way to guide me. Even more than the physical request I have in this trial, I desire for you to do a work in my life. Make me more like your son. And the believer who's maturing through these trials is always, always going to cling to God's word. Wisdom begins and ends with the word of God. And you don't just feast on God's word only when trials come. A maturing believer is in his word every single day. And a lot of you have been in those moments. It's amazing, isn't it, that when you feast on God's word every day and those trials do come, the way the Holy Spirit just brings the truth of his word up in your life because you have instilled it in your heart. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 26, that the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Man, a maturing believer doesn't just approach each trial like this. Okay, randomly, boom, Leviticus 18. No, we don't do that. We are actively in God's word every day. And he is preparing us for those moments. And he will bring to remembrance either what you've read in the past or where you're at currently. It's amazing how God's spirit will will use his word to guide you and direct you. If you crave it, if you desire his word more than anything else, and that includes the fervent prayer life of a believer, one who is committed every day to be in communication with God, saying, God, as I start my day out, come what may, I crave a better understanding of you. Whatever comes, God, use it for my maturity in you. Use it to grow me more like your son. Hebrews 4.16 says, we, we have full confidence to go to God. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So James says, if you, if you, if you do this, this path of spiritual maturity, if you're committed to it, you start with that commitment, I'm going to view my trials differently. I'm going to crave and seek after the wisdom of God then the Holy Spirit's also going to instill in you a firm belief that James says that you're truly going to believe that God is generous, meaning he's going to give you everything you need. Look again at verse 5. He says, let him ask God. And who is God? He's the God who gives generously to all without reproach. In the original Greek, that phrase, God who gives generously, in verse 5, emphasizes giving as a grand characteristic of God. It actually reads this way. Let him ask the constantly giving God. God's wisdom is like the biggest pitcher of water you've ever seen. And you reach those parched moments in your life and he's ready to pour his endless wisdom over you. Never run out. 
I was thinking, you know, we, we all have different human benefactors of wisdom in our life, people we trust, people we go to. But eventually, they all get a little irritated with us, right? If you're a parent or a child, we've been one or both, right? We all have had those moments where we have said or been told, how many times do I have to tell you this? How many times do I have to remind you? I was guilty of that this week with our four-and-a-half-year-old son, Ezra, walking by the bathroom. He loves to go to the bathroom with the door open. I look in. There's Ezra scanning the room. And I said, Ez, how many times do I have to tell you, pay attention when you go in the bathroom. Look where you're aiming. <laughs> you get tired of cleaning that up, you know. We have a two-week-old uh, Joel, I know that's coming for him too. But we've all been there, right? As human beings, we're flawed. And James says, not so with God. You will, if you come to God with humility and with confidence, you will never encounter divine irritation. Every time you come and seek his wisdom, he will say, my child, I'm so glad you came. Here comes my wisdom. He's the constantly giving God of wisdom. And James says next, if you have those marks of genuine faith, I'm committed to view the trials differently, God. And to do that, I'm going to seek after and crave your word. And what you give me, I'm going to firmly believe you are generous with your wisdom. You, you're going to give me exactly what you need. James says that next mark is you're going to start seeing more stability in your life. Look again at verses 6, 7, and 8. James says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Mark of a genuine faith and maturing believer is you're going to have stability through all of life's challenges. James says a doubting Christian is double-minded, unstable, and two-souled. Part of you believes and another part does not. Now, I want to be clear before we go forward on what this do not doubt isn't. Do not confuse, do not doubt with do not grieve. Many of you have gone through life-altering trials and tragedies. James is not telling you, do not grieve. Jesus, at the tomb of Lazarus, fully God, he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. And what did Jesus do? He wept. Some of you are grieving. That is a natural process. And God will use that for your growth in him. He's the ultimate comforter. We have grief share here at our church. We have counselors and those who help folks in Wilkinsburg or at all our campuses. Don't confuse that. I want to be sensitive to that. If you are hurting and grieving, he's not saying do not grieve. I also want to make clear that people will twist this verse. They'll say, see, if you didn't doubt, God would have taken away the cancer. If you would have had more faith and you didn't doubt, God would have given you that job. That's not what James is saying here. We always have to look in context. James is challenging these believers. 
Do not doubt the very two things I just told you that God will give you in the midst of any trial. One, do not doubt that he's going to use it for your spiritual maturity by producing in you steadfast faith. And do not doubt the manner in which he does that by being generous to give you all the wisdom you need if you seek it. Because if you doubt those two things, you're doubting the character of God. You're doubting his divine purpose through those trials. And when you start doubting that, you're going to be completely unstable. That's because you put your hope, your confidence, and your joy in the physical outcome of the trial instead of the spiritual development of your faith. He says, don't do that. Sadly, though, today... In the church, we often see people who are like this wave tossed in the sea. A wave tossed in the sea is without rest. So is the doubting believer. Always anxious, rarely at peace in their life. Does that describe you? Always anxious, rarely at peace. A wave of the sea is driven by the wind. So is the doubting believer. Every new circumstance and trial dictates your attitude and view of God. You just sang, I'm counting on God in worship, and by Monday morning, the newest trial has sent you just swerving away, doubting everything that you just proclaimed in worship. A wave of the sea is capable of great destruction. So is the doubting believer. Not only does that doubt disrupt your communion with God, but it damages your witness to the unbelievers in your life. They know you proclaim faith in Christ, but yet you seem to doubt him and complain all the time, not trusting that he's going to provide, and they don't see anything attractive about your faith. And the hard truth is, James says, a doubting and unstable believer This isn't an A, B, C, D, and F type of grading scale. It is pass-fail. The doubting believer will not get the wisdom they need, and they will not ride that trowel onward and upward to spiritual maturity. They'll remain stuck in spiritual immaturity. Now, do I think God is demanding absolute perfect faith here. I don't think so. If we needed perfect faith, few of us would ever receive wisdom from God and few of us would ever grow in the spiritual maturity through trials. But I see this stable follower of Christ as one, though, doubt might creep in initially, they are right back on track. Why? Because the word of God has been instilled in their life. They're in fervent prayer every day. And that power of the spirit, not yours, of the spirit of God in your life gets you right back to stability. You do not waver and you trust that God is doing something through this for my good and I'm going to seek after God for the wisdom to understand what that is. That's the stability that God calls us to be as followers of Christ. The final mark that I see in this is if I can't help but think, if you start out with these trials in your life, with a commitment to view them differently, with that commitment to continue to be steadfast in the word of God in prayer, with a firm belief that God is generous to give you everything you need, and you start to live with this, with this stability in your life, 
you're going to look a lot different than many people around you. And the final mark I see this morning of genuine faith is this. You're going to be a beacon of light to this dark world. People are going to take notice of you. I was thinking, man, across all our campuses, if we have believers in Jesus Christ growing in this maturity, growing into this stability that come what may, we are anchored in Christ. People are going to take notice. And when you're having coffee at Eaton Park on 19 or, or at Nancy's on South Avenue in Wilkes, and you're sitting down with that coworker or friend, and, and you've been th- through a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff this year, and they say, can I ask you something? You seem so calm, and I'm going to be honest, you seem so calm, yet your life's in chaos. It's like everything around you unstable, but inside you're joyful and you're stable. What, what is your secret? What an opportunity to say, it's not me, it's God. When I was dead in my sin, a sinner like you and like everyone else, God grabbed my heart. I heard the truth of his word, that Jesus Christ, his son, took on flesh, lived the perfect life that I could not live, that's demanded from God in order for eternal life. Jesus did that for me. And when I believed that he died on the cross, was buried in a grave and rose again, and I I believed that truth and I trusted in him as my Lord and Savior, My saving faith set me free for eternity. I live at peace knowing that when I die, I know exactly where I'm going. And therefore, my whole perspective on life's trials changed. You're right. I've been going through some tough stuff. My whole family has. But these trials cannot touch my salvation in Jesus. And now I operate in this daily faith You know I I often talk about God's word. I I read his word every day. I pray. You know I go to the Bible chapel, my church. I fellowship with other Christians there. And in the midst of these things I'm going through, God is generous to give me everything I need. You know, sometimes it's not exactly what I want, but I know he's working for my good. And in all of it, he is molding me, growing me, and making me more like his son, Jesus Christ. And then maybe you can ask them, but let me ask you this, because this is something I I can't imagine. I don't know how someone could live their life without that stability. When trials come, what do you cling to? Your possessions one day are going to go. Your family one day will be gone. Your own physical health one day will deteriorate. What are you truly clinging to? I would love to share with you about the only stability that will change your life, not for now, but for eternity. Can I share with you what it means to have the peace that I have in my Savior, Jesus Christ? Man, a witness we can be as the church if we make this commitment of genuine faith. And I don't want this to be a work harder message There's a call for us to pursue Christ and make that commitment. But this is the work of God in your life when you get in his word and get in prayer and get in fellowship with the church. And man, I would love these places of worship in the South Hills and Wilkinsburg, Ross Draper, Robinson, Washington, to be that beacon of light that God calls us to be. 
that anchor in our communities. It's not the building, it's the people of God who are steadfast in viewing everything through the lens that God is making me more like Jesus. And I'm going to pursue him knowing that. We're going to get ready for communion. So in, in Wilkinsburg, I'm going to invite Jim and Ted and those to get ready uh, in Wilkinsburg. And communion is the time, church, where it centers us back to Christ. This is not just a monthly ritual we do. This is a command of Christ. And it's amazing. What's the best way to get back on track, to make sure you're, you're traveling that path to spiritual maturity, is to center our hearts back to the cross every single time. If you are here tonight, today, and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask that you please do not partake of communion. Communion is for believers only. Our prayer is that God is working in your life right now to draw you into a relationship with Christ. But, but communion is for believers only. And for, for our church family, we encourage you. Paul says to the church in Corinth, we're called to examine our hearts every time we partake of the bread and the cup. Whatever God's encouraging you to do, whatever he's calling you to do this morning, give this time over to Christ. Our anchor, our confidence, and our hope is what he did for us on the cross. Let me pray for us as we prepare for communion. Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you how amazing it is. We looked at only seven verses in one book of your word. And the richness of truth, the richness of how you want to empower us and guide us and grow us. The amazing truth that's in those seven verses reminds us that this could only be your word. Your inspired, authoritative word that needs to guide our life every day. God, today I pray as we partake of the bread and the cup, we must do so in reverence of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that makes all of this possible, but also with great joy, with joy knowing that the ultimate biggest challenge we have, it's already taken care of by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And as we partake of communion, we do so in remembrance of that. Father, please bless this time of worship at all our campuses, and we commit this time of communion to you now in Christ's name. Amen.